Well, good morning. Good to be with you. My name is Brandon, one of the pastors here at River City. Grateful that you are here. If you are new or visiting, just want to say especially welcome to you. Glad you're here. If there's anything that we can do to help you get connected to the community here at River City, we would really love to do that. Come find me afterwards. Anybody else you've seen up front, we really would love to get to know you and help you get plugged in here. So uh, this morning, looking forward to opening God's Word again with you guys together. Uh, and this morning, we're actually starting a brand new series together, so I'm excited about that. We spent uh, the last 10 months or so working our way through the Gospel of Matthew together. And, and the theme of Matthew's Gospel, the, 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 the big E on the eye chart, the thing that kept coming up over and over and over again, the, 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 the big story that all the little stories were telling was the story about the king and the kingdom. You see, Matthew's gospel is all about how Jesus was God who had come to earth and, and to rescue people from the enemies of Satan and sin and death and to inaugurate his kingdom, his long-awaited kingdom on the earth. But as we saw throughout that book, neither Jesus' birth, his life, his death, even his resurrection, it wasn't the end of the story. Instead, as we saw a few weeks ago as we studied the Olivet Discourse, that it was instead Jesus' first coming was the beginning of the final chapter. You see, one day the story will end with the king's glorious and triumphant return, where he will one day come to rule and to reign in glory and in person. And then we, we closed our study of Matthew's gospel last week. What we saw is that with, with King Jesus' final words, with his, with his last words to his disciples, he commissions them. He commissions them, and what he commissions them for is to be his kingdom ambassadors, to be, to be sent to go and to make disciples of every nation. We saw baptizing them, he says, establishing them in the identity that God wants to give them and, and teaching them to obey all that God has commanded. And See, their commission was to fill the earth with God's redeemed, image-bearing representatives. And see, in Jesus' kingly commission at the end of Matthew 28, it echoes the commission that God gives Adam and Eve all the way back in Genesis 2 in the garden when he tells them to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth, to fill the earth with people who bear his image, who reflect his character and his glory to the world. You see, one of the most central storylines in all of the Bible is that God is making a people for himself. God is making a people for himself. Ephesians 1 tells us that people will be for the praise of his glory. You see, that's where the story began, all the way back in Genesis 1 with creation of humanity as God's image bears and the commission to fill the earth. And it's where the story ends in Revelation as God's people from every tribe and tongue and nation on earth are gathered around him in heaven, worshiping him and praising him forever. You see, and from beginning to end, what's at the heart of the identity and at the purpose of God's kingdom people is the worship of the king. I think it's the heart of the identity of God's kingdom people is the worship of the king. You see, it's a worship that includes singing, but is characterized by so much more than songs. It is a worship that includes giving, but it is about so much more than generosity. It's a, it's a worship that includes preaching, but is about so much more than sermons. You see, the worship that characterizes the identity and the purpose of God's people throughout all of the Bible is lives that are lived in obedience to his commands. 1 Samuel 15, 22 says it this way, obedience is better than sacrifice. John, 1 John 5, 3 says it this way, this is love for God, to keep his commands. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaking to people, he says, blessed are those who don't just hear my words, but who do them, who obey them, who follow them. 
You see, the God is making a people for himself. And the calling of God's people throughout the whole story is ultimately to worship. It's, it's to a worship that looks like conforming our lives to his word and to, and to his ways, to, to obedience to his commands. Matthew 28 showed us that that involves teaching others to do the same. You see, and that brings us to where we're headed this fall. See, as a community, if it's God's people, we, we want to be God's people in the world. We, we want to live as God's commissioned kingdom ambassadors in the world whose worship is characterized by lives of obedience to his commands. And then we've got to know what God's commands are. and We've got to know what it looks like to apply those to our lives. And so to that end, this fall, we're going to be taking a look at the first and most foundational set of commands that God gives his people. It's found in Exodus 20. It's the Ten Commandments. Maybe you've heard of them before. My heart for us as we study, whether you are familiar or unfamiliar with these, is that God might enable you to see these commands in a new kind of way. You see, not as a checklist of do's and don'ts or as a standard to keep measuring your behavior against, not, not as a burden that you just have to kind of muscle through and, and barrier, just kind of suck it up and make it happen, or, or, or neither as chains that keep you from experiencing all that life has to offer. Instead, my heart is that you might see these commands in a new way as an invitation to a life of freedom and blessing that God extends to his people as we live out our identity and purpose as his commissioned kingdom image bearers. You see, in my, my heart as well, is that as God shapes your understanding of his commands, that he might also increase your desire and your ability to apply them to your lives, to live out, to obey what he actually commands us to do, so that, so that as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, in whatever you do, you would do it for the glory of the one who has saved you. So that every day we might look increasingly more and more and more like Jesus. And so with that in mind, I want to pray. We'll study God's word together. We'll open it and read it. I trust that it will be good for your hearts as it has been for mine this week. King Jesus, we come before you this morning and we are so grateful for you. We are grateful for your great love for us. We are grateful for the ways, that you, uh, the ways that you pursue us, the ways that you care for us. God, we are grateful for the ways that you have kept your word so that we might know it, and in knowing it, we might know you. And so, God, we come humbly this morning asking that you might be shaping our hearts, that you might fill me with your spirit so that I can teach what is not just what is right, but with power. God, I can't do that without you. God, and we need you to be the ones that enable us to hear and respond to your word. God, our default mode of our hearts is not in line with you. So God, we ask by your grace that you might cause us to come in line with your word, to be able to put ourselves under your good authority as we study your word this morning. God, we really, we really need you. God, we want to be your kingdom people sent into the world so that we might love and worship you with our lives. And so we ask that you would... uh, that you would help us to pursue those ends as we see you in your word this morning, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we are this morning, uh, we're in, a, in Exodus 19 and 20. And uh, Mike, I might not have uh, put the slides up correctly, but uh, you can just trust me. This is God's word. <laughs> we're gonna, I'm just going to read a few chunks from, from 19 and 20 as we, as we set up our study this morning. Exodus 19.1 begins this way. It says, On the first day of the third month, after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai. And after they set out from Rephidim, they, they entered the desert of Sinai. And Israel camped in the desert in front of the mountain. 
And then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called him from the mountain, and he said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, who, are to t- who, who you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession." Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. And so Moses went back and he summoned the elders of the people and he set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him to speak. And the people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. And then Moses led the people out to the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. And Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because of the Lord had descended on it with fire. And the smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. And the whole mountain trembled violently as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. And Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. And the Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai. And he called Moses to the mountain. And so Moses went up. 20 verse 1 begins this way. And God spoke all of these words. For I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or heaven beneath or or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation of all those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and who keep my commands And you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor, do all of your work, but the seventh day is is a Sabbath for the Lord your God. On it you you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals or foreigners residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother so that that you may live long in the land the Lord as God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his, his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When the people saw the thunder and the lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in the smoke, they trembled with fear. And they stayed at a distance. And Moses said, speak. They said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will surely die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. For God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sin. So this morning, as we begin our study of the next 10, 10 weeks here, taking a look at, at, the, at these commands, there's, there's three big things that we need to cover this morning, three foundational framework-level truths that we, need to, that we need to kind of, like big rocks we need to put in the bucket first before anything else gets in there. You see, in the first big rock that needs to get into the bucket, the thing that we need to get straight before we talk about any of the commands or what any of them mean is the foundational biblical truth that identity leads to doing. Identity leads to doing. You see, who you are, it determines what you do, and clarity regarding your identity is meant to shape your behavior. See, I remember hearing a pastor one time uh, share a story about how whenever he was a teenager, and he was about to leave the house, uh, go hang out with his friends, or go do whatever, his dad would always say, before he left, he would always just say, 
Remember who you are. And his dad wasn't, he wasn't trying to, he wasn't telling him, now, don't disgrace the family, son. Whatever you do, don't disgrace the family, right? That, that's not what his dad was talking about. What he says, is that instead, his dad was, it was inviting him to remember that he was a Christian, that he belonged to God, and to let his identity in Christ shape the way that he lived, what he did that evening. You see, the Ten Commandments, they begin the same way. You see, as the curtain opens on God's commands for his people, we see that the stage that they are set on is that of identity. You see, the passage doesn't begin with what or why or how. You see, the passage begins with who. It begins with the revelation of who God is and who his people are. Make no mistake about it. God intends to adjust their behavior. God absolutely cares about what they do and the way that they are living. But he begins with a reminder first about who he is and who they are. Exodus 20 verse 2 reads this way, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You see, God reveals himself as the Lord, all caps. If you ever read in your Bibles and you see L-O-R-D, Lord, in all caps, that's referring to God's covenant name, his his covenant name of Yahweh. God's saying, I am the one true God. There is only one, and I am the one. I'm the covenant-keeping God that promised that I would make you my people and that I would keep you and rescue you and and care for you. I am the the God who had just powerfully and miraculously led you out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt. The God who in Exodus 19 verse 4 carried them on eagles' wings, bringing them to himself. God says, I am the Lord. I am the King. I am the one true only God. Not Egypt not Pharaoh, not Moses, not anyone or anything else, just me. And I'm the God who has come to rescue his people, to set them free. In Exodus 19, the Israelites are gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai, and after generations of being called slaves, God instead refers to them as his treasured possessions. He refers to them as a kingdom of priests, as a holy nation. You see, this is, this is so important that we see before we ever talk about even what any of the commands are or what it means to live them out. You see, before God tells them to do anything, he reminds them of who he is and of who they are in him. You see, they are his treasured people, and he is their saving king. You see, it's in the context of of this renewed identity that God lays out the kind of life he calls his his saved people to live. You see, this is the ground they need to stand on, and it's the ground that you and I need to stand on as well. You see, because identity is the thing that determines our actions. You see, and that brings us to the second big rock that we need to put in in the bucket of our understanding of God's word as as we head into our study this fall. You see, God's commands, they not only show us what God wants, they show us what God is like. God's commands, they, they not only show us what God wants, they show us what God is like. You see, God's law is not a legalistic list of his favorite rules, and it's not an arbitrary list he made either based on how he was just feeling that day. You see, God's law is a revelation of his very being. That's why Jesus and the New Testament writers, they reiterate and they reemphasize the inherent goodness of God's word and of his law. You see, because God's law is a reflection of his character. It's a reflection of the one who wrote it. 
See, I began our time this morning by saying that one of the most central storylines of the Bible is that God is making a people for himself who who will be for the praise of his glory and and a people who will worship God with their lives, with with lives that reflect the nature and the character of the the God they worship into the world. You see, in the, the way that his people worship him, the way that we reflect his nature, his character into the world is by obeying his commands. And the reason why obeying God's commands is so intrinsically intertwined with the worship of him is because God's commands, they not only show us what God wants, they show, they show us what he is like. You see, at the heart of the Ten Commandments is not a set of rules. You see, rather it's a description of what it, likes, what it looks like to worship God. What it looks like to bear his image, to reflect his nature and his character to the world. You see, and seeing God's commands as a revelation of his character is the key to understanding them in the first place, but it's also the key to understanding their ongoing role in our lives. You see, I think anyone who has ever earnestly attempted to read the Old Testament has had the question, which of these commands, like, what do we do with this stuff? Which of these commands still applies to us? I mean, I figure, I figure the murder command is probably still in effect, probably the adultery one, but what about the Sabbath thing? Like, what is going on there? And Honoring your parents, it seems like that's just different in our world. And what about all the really weird stuff about like not eating bacon or shellfish or wearing mixed fiber clothes or not building fences around your roof or not cutting off your beard? I mean, the last one, I guess we can probably see the merits of that, some of us at least. But, but most of them, right, we, there's so much of that. We think, what, what do we do with any of this stuff? You see, in a lot of people, what they end up just doing is kind of picking or choosing the ones that they think they should keep. Or the ones that, that they perceive the cost is not too high to keep. I mean, life without bacon? What's the purpose of that, right? Like, it's just like life with no happiness, right? But in all seriousness, you see, it really matters how we approach this stuff. It, it matters, especially because so many people just think Christians are either inconsistent or hypocritical. They think the Bible is just kind of like this messed up book that just doesn't have any clarity. It's outdated. You see, I've seen even people walk away from the Bible and God altogether because they just don't know what to do with all of these commands. And so answering the question about God, the role of God's law in our life, it's not only good, it is important. You see, and I think one of the most helpful ways to, to approach those questions are to look at the three types of laws there are in the Old Testament. You see, for Old Testament Israel, all three of these laws, they kind of blended together because Israel was in a unique place historically, both as a nation and as a worshiping community, but for us, it's helpful to see them in, in kind of three interpretive categories. And the first, is, first is, is that there are some types of laws that are, that are called or referred to as ceremonial laws. You see, these are laws that govern the temple worship and the way people approach God. They, they have to do with the layout of the temple or what was clean or unclean with the sacrificial system in general, that, those kinds of things. And, and what they did is they highlighted God's holiness and humanity's unholiness. They, they emphasize the gap between the two and, and the cost of bridging that gap. And you see, and what the book of Hebrews teaches us is that all of those laws, what they were doing is they were foreshadowing. They were, they were, they were prefiguring Jesus and the gospel. You see, I would encourage you, if you have time, go, go read the book of Hebrews. It is an incredible picture of how all the Old Testament stuff was pointing towards Jesus You see, Jesus ultimately fulfilled what all of the ceremonial laws were pointing to, which is why we don't sacrifice animals here on Sundays, right? You see, Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice, and when we accept him, we don't need any lesser sacrifices anymore. 
You see, through his life and his death on the cross, he fulfilled the ceremonial law completely, and so we are no longer bound by that. Then there are civil laws. These are the kind of laws that govern the nation of Israel. They're about taxes and charging interest and, and punishments as well for sin and for crimes. You see, and these are really good to study because they show us the breadth of the things God cares about. And they show us what he thinks justice looks like and what he, what he thinks peace really looks like. And, but these things, they no longer apply to us because we're not living in theocratic Israel. We are not under a theocracy. Instead, Jesus started a new Israel, a, a spiritual Israel, the church. And so we're no longer bound by the civil codes of Leviticus because God does not have a nation state on, on earth anymore. His kingdom is altogether different, right? Jesus in the book of Matthew, we saw over and over, right? His kingdom is a kingdom of the heart. You see, and lastly, there are moral laws. So there are ceremonial, there are civil, and there are moral laws. And these laws declared what God deemed was right or wrong, what God deemed was good or evil. And the moral laws they are based on, they, they reflect and they reveal God's moral character. You see, the moral law is summarized in the Ten Commandments. That's why it's so important for us to study them, because it's, the Ten Commandments are a revelation of God's moral character to us. And they're expounded throughout other passages, throughout Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. You see, but Jesus, just like the other two, Jesus fulfills the moral law. I can't wait to show you each week how Jesus does that. It is such incredibly good news that I hope will encourage your hearts and challenge you. But these laws are still in effect for us today because they are a reflection of God's moral character, and that never changes. You see, in fact, whenever Jesus mentioned the moral laws, he either reaffirmed them or he intensified them in further because, you see, the things that were offensive to God in, at the, when he wrote them at the Ten Commandments are still offensive to him. You see, the things that he thinks are right and wrong are good and evil. Those things don't change because God does not change. You see, and so Jesus' fulfillment of these laws, they don't get rid of the moral laws. Instead, the difference that the gospel makes is that the gospel empowers us to actually obey them. The gospel empowers us to actually follow them in a way that we could never have done before. And that brings us to the third foundational thing that we need to understand as we begin our study of the Ten Commandments this morning. You see, we need to understand that, that the Ten Commandments and God's law, they are powerless to save you. They are powerless to save you. They are powerless to change you. You see, they can only show you the reality of your sin-sick heart. And they can show you what, healthy, what a healthy heart looks like. But they cannot save you. They cannot change you. It's, the Ten Commandments are kind of like a spiritual MRI, right? An MRI can show you what a healthy body looks like. An MRI can show you what a sick body looks like. But an MRI machine, it cannot cure you. It cannot fix you. It cannot save you. You see, it is a diagnostic tool. It's not a cure. You see, in the diagnosis that every one of us gets under the spiritual MRI of the Ten Commandments is that we are sick. You see, you see, we take, when you look at the Ten Commandments, you and I, as we think about them, we fail at all of them. All of them we fail. You see, you and I, we have not always loved God exclusively. We have not always worshipped him rightly. We have not always honored his name. We have not always rested in him. We, we have not always honored our parents or those in authority over us. And you, you may not have killed someone or, or slept with someone who isn't your spouse, but Jesus says if, if you've hated someone or lusted after someone in the heart, you've already broken them. You see, you and I, we have all stolen maybe things Maybe time, maybe credit for someone else's work. 
You see, we've all coveted other people's stuff, their things, their possessions, their relationships. You see, when we look at the Ten Commandments, we are utterly out of line with them. You see, but we don't pass a single one. But, but more than the fact that we don't pass a single one, what we see is that if we're honest, is that the reality of our hearts is that we long for the opposite of these. The default mode of our hearts longs for the opposite of what these commands so often. You see, we often see these commands as restrictive chains, things that hold us back from, from freedom and, and experiencing life. You see, and that all that does is it further reveals the depravity and the wickedness of our hearts. You see, the commands reveal the beauty and the holiness of God and the fact that our hearts are inclined naturally towards none of them. It reveals the sickness of our hearts and our utter depravity before God. You see, the same was true for the Israelites. You see, at the end of the first five books of the Bible, you see Moses giving a speech to the people And basically what he tells them is this. He says, I know that you're not going to follow God's laws. We enter enter the promised land. What I can promise you is that I know you're not going to follow God's laws. You've you've proven that you are incapable of doing it. And he was right. I mean, if you read the rest of the Old Testament, what you keep seeing over and over and over and over again is God's people continually, repeatedly rebelling and not obeying. It's like watching a much more tragic and way less funny version of Wipeout. It's like you just know that somebody's face is going to smack the end of a platform sometime soon, right? See, that's the way that the Old Testament is so often. You see, it's just like you know it's only a matter of time before God's people choose to disobey, choose to rebel. See, what Moses says at the end of that speech is is that their hearts are the problem. You see, their hearts are hard and that they're going to need new transformed hearts if they're ever going to truly follow God's law. You see, the spiritual MRI of the Ten Commandments, it reveals that we all have hearts that are sick with the disease of sin. You see, and this is where the gospel gets incredibly good. You see, because the message of the gospel is that Jesus came so that we might have his heart. You see, Jesus perfectly obeyed every command. Where we fail, he did not. We see, he lived the perfect life of worship. He lived a life of perfect obedience. In all of the commands, his record is spotless. It is perfect. It is absolutely pure. You see, and in coming and living and dying in our place, you see, what Jesus does is he fulfills what he makes possible, what, what Ezekiel and Jeremiah prophesied would happen when they said that one day God would turn people's hard hearts into soft ones, that one day God would write his law not on tablets of stone but on people's hearts so that we might have hearts that not only can obey God but hearts that long to do it see Jesus came that he might die that we might receive new hearts that we might receive his heart a heart that is revealed in a life of obedient worship unto him you see and the truth is is that the only way you get his heart the only way you get a new heart is by acknowledging that yours is sick And that what you need is a fix that you cannot provide. You see that you need God to give you a new heart. You see, the beauty of the gospel is that you cannot save yourself. Oh, but God can. And he's already made a way so that you might have salvation in him. You see, he's already given himself for you so that you might have a new heart that can love him and long for him and not just try to obey, but long to do it. 
You see how that changes you? You see, do you see how that transforms you? You see how that fundamentally changes the way that you look at the Ten Commandments? You see, they're not just a list of rules that hold you down. Instead, they're a guide to a life free from the bonds of sin, a life spent doing what you were designed to do, worshiping the one whose image you bear, reflecting his goodness and his glory and his character in the way that you live and in the way that you relate to the world. Not in order to get something from him, but because you have already been given everything you could possibly have or long for from him. Trevin Wax, a commentator, he writes it this way. He says, some people think that in order to be free from the slavery of sin, they need to begin living this way. That once we live according to the Ten Commands, we'll be free. We will attain salvation. But the Bible teaches that it is the other way around. God's grace comes first. You see, the Ten Commandments aren't given to Israel until they have already been brought out of slavery. Why? He says, because in bondage they could not have lived in this way. You see, they have been brought out of slavery, shown mercy, so that they might be able to live in this new way. You see, he says, the same is true for us. See, we don't keep the commands in order to experience salvation. We experience salvation in order that we might now be able to keep the commands. You see, see, the Ten Commandments, they're not instructions about how to get out of slavery in Egypt. They're They're not instructions about how to get free. You see, they are a guide that shows us what freedom from sin looks like. They, are, they show a freed people what it looks like to live free. They show us what it looks like to live in the freedom that God has bought for us, the freedom that he has died so that we might have. You see, God's law, it shows us what it looks like to live a life to the full. Jesus in, in John chapter 10 says that I have come so that you may have life abundantly, that you may have life to the full. You see, God's commands, they show us what, the, what it means to live a life that honors him, to live a life in the identity and the purpose that he has given for us. And the gospel is the thing that empowers us to pursue that kind of life. The gospel is the thing that empowers us to pursue that kind of life. There's an old rim hidden, an old hymn written by John Newton, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. And I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but he writes about how the gospel fundamentally transforms our hearts and in turn then transforms our lives because our, it changes our motivations. It changes the, the root level things about us and that in turn changes the outworking. He writes and he says this, he says, our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. He says, to see the law of Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice transforms a slave into a child and duty into choice. You see, that's the transforming power of the gospel. You see, God's law, the Ten Commandments, they can't do that for you. They can't transform duty into choice. They can't transform you from a slave into a free son and heir. You see, oh, but the gospel can. You see, in the Ten Commandments as we study them are not in an effort that we might get something from God, but in an effort that we might respond in out of love, out of joy for all that he has done for us. 
that we might, by the power of the gospel, have new motives, new hearts, new desires to actually long to obey the king, to long to live in obedience to his commands. And the goodness of the gospel, the blessing of God's word, is that when we obey him, it is not only good for us, it is ultimately for his great glory. You see, every week, that's what we're remembering when we take communion together. That's what we're remembering It's not that we do something to get to God, but that God has done everything to get to us. You see, what we're remembering when we take the bread and the juice is we're remembering all that Jesus has done for us, his body and his blood broken and shed for us so that we might be free from the sickness of sin and given new hearts that can love him and that can obey him. You see, communion, it does not make you right with God. It does not change your status or your standing with him in any way. Instead, it's an opportunity for us to remember For us to remember him. Exodus 19, God begins his his talk with his people and he says, Remember how I brought you out of Egypt. Remember how I bore you on eagle's wings, how I brought you to myself. You see, we are the most forgetful people. If there is one thing we excel at, it is forgetting God. It's forgetting who he is and all that he has done. You see, that's why we have communion every week. You see, because we forget We forget who God is, we forget all that he has done, and we forget who he has made us to be in him. And so every week when we dip the bread in the juice and we take communion, what we're doing is we are choosing to remember. We are choosing to set our eyes on Jesus, to be reminded of him, who he is, and all that he has done, and who he has made us to be, so that out of love for him, out of joy in him, out of gratitude for him, we might live lives of obedient worship unto him. You see, the bread and the juice here at River City, they're in the back. During our time of worship, you can simply go back as you feel led and and dip the bread in the juice, and that's how you take communion here. As we sing, as we worship, as we remember the gospel together in song, if you have put your trust in Jesus, if he has given you a new heart that longs to obey him out of love for him, then during our time of communion, go back, dip the bread in the juice, take communion, remember his body, his blood broken for you, shed for you so that you might be free and live free in him. But if that's not where your heart is at this morning, if you realize that the, the honest truth is that you don't actually want to obey him, you might want his stuff or you might want his blessings, but you don't really want him, then I want you to know this morning, you are welcome here. This place is not a place for perfect people. It's not a place for people who have, have all the answers and who have everything together. It's a place where we can pursue what it means to follow Jesus. And so if that's where you're at this morning, I just want to know you are welcome But I encourage you to hold off on taking communion. Talk with God. Be honest with him. Ask him your questions. Talk to him about your doubts. Be honest with him about the fears that you have. You see, he can take it. He can handle it. He is big enough to wrestle with those things with you and to be gracious in the process of it. So this morning, as we take communion, as we remember the gospel together, I'd encourage all of us, talk with God. Ask him to make your heart ready to respond to his commands as we study this fall. You see, I just need you to hear this for all of us. The default mode of our heart stands at odds with God's commands. Some of them are easier for us to handle than others. Some of them are easier for some of you and harder for others. But the truth is that all of us need God to be the one who shapes our hearts so that we're able to respond to him. 
You see, some of you need to ask God that he would break down your defenses, that he would break down your pride, that he would break down your self-sufficiency, so that as we study his word and the commands that he gives his people, that you might be able to graciously and humbly respond to them. Some of you this morning, what you need is, is not a reminder of your guilt under the Ten Commandments. Some of you, what you need this morning is a reminder of the freedom and the status you have as God's chosen people. Some of you need to ask Jesus to remind you of a new identity that he has already given you. You see, you find yourself crushed under the weight of your guilt and under the weight of sin. You see, and what you need is for the gospel to remind you of the freedom you have in him. You see, for all of us, though, no matter where you are, whether you need the reminder of your guilt and that you need Jesus to come alongside you and make you humble, or whether you need him to come alongside you and give you strength, you see, all of us, need for him to remind us of the identity that he gives. You see, all of us need to ask us to empower him to live in light of the new identity that he gives us so that we might live lives of worship unto him, lives of worship that are characterized by obedience to him. You see, the good news of the gospel, the great blessing of what we gather every week to sing and to celebrate and to proclaim is that the God who has called us to obey him is the one who has obeyed for us. That we might be free in him. That we might have the weight of obedience lifted from us so that we might long to do it for him. You see, there is life in the gospel that there is found nowhere else. And so to that end, to the enjoying of Jesus, to the responding to him, to, to worship of him that's characterized by lies of obedience to him, let us pray to that end. Let us sing and worship to that end as we gather this morning. King Jesus, we come. We are so incredibly grateful for you. God, we are thankful for your law because it reveals you to us so that we might know you better. And we are grateful, Jesus, that the law doesn't, is not rooted in, in what we're supposed to do, but it's rooted in who you have called us to be. And God, we're so grateful that although your word and your law it reveals the sickness of our hearts, God, what we know is that the gospel is the cure. And so, God, we come with hearts that are full of gratitude this morning because we come before your word, not condemned. God, but we come before your word if we are in your son, if we have put our hope in you as your freed people, already seen as obedient, already enjoyed, already treasured. And so, God, because we have what we should never have, because you have called us your children when we should be called your enemies, because you have adopted us and loved us long before we could do anything for you, oh God, God, fill us with a love for you that longs to live for you. God, fill us with a joy in you that overflows in a worshipful obedience unto you. God, help us to love you in response to how you have loved us and to live for you as your kingdom people in the world. God, we love you. Pray these things in your good and great name. Amen.